Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can, the best way possible, while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own, because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage, why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Liron, good morning. Good morning, Tal. Thank you for coming to the show. Uh, we love having you here. You bring a super interesting angle to the discussion about startups, and that's innovation. But before we go all deep and serious, let's start off with the simple things. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? I define myself firstly as an entrepreneur. I'm involved in several ventures these days. I have established a few in, in, in the past. I'm also a lecturer. I lecture in a um, few universities and, and college about innovation, about data, about finance, fintech. I used to be, I'm, maybe I will be in the future again, uh, like a manager. So, you know, leading teams of um, employees, developers, and, and so on. You were an R&D director for a period. So I'm a mathematician by formation. So I spent a lot of time in university. <laughs> I liked it. I was a student for, for about a decade. So I studied international relations, uh, business administration, and also uh, the green math. Uh, and I started my career as an algorithm developer uh, for a time. And then I shifted to product management, R&D management, site management, and then, and then became an entrepreneur. I'm still stuck on the mathematician. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, it's a tough question. I liked it. And, you know, I think it's, um, I like, probably I, I like solving riddles. All right. And, um, 
it was a challenge it's interesting it's a, it's a good base right because you you learn how to you know to think in a very i would say methodological or structured way and to solve problems and eventually what you do whether you are a manager or an entrepreneur you are solving problems most of the time you progress through solving problems from the short intro you gave it sounds like there wasn't a trend in tech that you want a part of algorithm fintech <laughs> big data <laughs> so the reality is that you know in life you you cannot plan everything right so I actually started my career as an economist so I did a uh, um, degree in how in, many careers uh, did you have uh, <laughs> what's going I had, on I had three so I you know when I was younger I did um, more like in education um, I did various role in, in that space and then I decided you know maybe this is not what I want to do all my life I had a degree in business administration so I was um, working as an economist for uh, and a consultant uh, with consulting firms and And then I decided that you know it was like the high-tech period uh, the late 90s uh, of the previous century and I said you know I don't want to be the one doing the excels I want to be the one developing the the products and this is why I went to uh, to study math because I wanted to you know to have a good background and then um, by chance right I, I joined a company called super derivatives they were looking for somebody to develop algorithms actually they were looking for a mathematician which uh, was uh, pretty you I wouldn't say it was a rare job back then, but a lot of the people would, uh, a lot of mathematicians would go to uh, image processing and so on. I was less interested. Uh, this was pricing options. So it was really practicing what I studied in the uh, academia. Perfect fit from, from your work as an economist, taking your uh, qualifications as a mathematician and now implementing it in a, some sort of a, a, a tech uh, framework. Exactly. It was great. I played. did it for a couple of years and then um, I kind of shifted to the product side the company uh, was sold right the company was sold about four or five years ago to IC which is the what well, better known as NICE the uh, exchange uh, and still operating it's a big uh, R&D center today so uh, pretty big success story in the uh, fintech local fintech scene Israel isn't famous for its uh, fintech scene uh, and yet um One of the last things you were involved in was city's innovation lab here in Israel. Israel was not famous for fintech. Uh, let me tell you a few stories about that. So firstly, last year, fintech was the largest domain in terms of venture capital investment in Israel, like cyber. So $1.8 billion invested in fintech last year, similar to cyber. Seriously? Really. And... About six companies raised more than 100 million dollars. So just you know a few days ago, Lemonade IPO'd in, um, you know, in uh, New York. It's insurtech, but it's you know, part of FinTech success story. So, so Israel uh, became you know, a FinTech uh, hub, uh, a global FinTech hub uh, to date. Uh, it's true that 10 years ago when we started City, Israel was nowhere in terms of uh, FinTech. there were a couple of companies, there's Triana and Super Derivatives and Funtech. So we, there were a couple of companies, but still it was pretty small, about 2% of the uh, Israeli ITIC. And when City came, it was part of a government program. And the government originally wanted to make Israel like Emirates, um, you know, a financial center in... Uh, and then they went 
before even city right to consult with some you know large bank in uh, new york and ask them about it and then the guys in the banks told them look israel is famous for technology not for finance so maybe you guys should focus on building technology for finance and not necessarily become like a, a global finance hub and they liked it and they uh, ran a government program to attract large organizations to israel and city was one of them and 10 years down the road fintech becomes like a, a big thing for um you know for the israeli high-tech uh, scene so pretty successful you speaking about tremendous amounts of investment in human resources in capital in governmental programs where is this all going why so firstly finance is you know is our day-to-day almost everything that you're doing is involved with money finance financial services it's huge regardless of uh, fintech right the biggest thing is financial services healthcare very significant part of your day-to-day the landscape is changing in in several aspects so first think about the e-commerce okay so everything which is going online so in the past you had like cash or checks or this is the way you were interacting with money but Today, this is not the case. Today, you want to go online, you know, buy a shirt or something like that and need to pay. And maybe the, the store you're buying from is, I don't know where it is in the world. You need a good payment you know, system in place to do that. Today, apart from SpaceX, the biggest startup company in the US is a company called Stripe, which is a payment gateway. And basically what Stripe did is to help e-commerce connect to the payment network in a, in a seamless way. Essentially, what they did was allow every website very easily to, to embed a solution that helps them uh, collect uh, money from credit cards. And now they are a $36 billion company. It's insane. Two Irish brothers came yeah. out of absolutely nowhere. I wouldn't say came out of nowhere. They, they had a company before, but the, the, yes. But, and, and basically, they started... They wanted to have their, um, you know, their own e-commerce and then they realized how difficult it is to just to get money. Now, if you take it with other places, you, let's see about other trends that happening in, in finance. Uh, the second is digital banks. You don't need branches anymore. All right. So there's no point in most cases for you to go to a, to a branch. You can do most of your activities online and in, in a safe way. So you start having new type of banks, some call it challengers, neobanks that basically provide a branchless uh, uh, solution, which why is it good for you? It's good for you because it's efficient institutions where, you know, you have a couple of people comparing to the uh, current system, providing you services, better services, much more modern in, in much less money. So this is another trend. And there's a lot of money all around the world, by the way. It also helps in terms of inclusion because it helps people which were not um, accessible to bank accounts to, to have one in a very simple way because your bank account is basically your mobile phone. There's a huge category that's called the unbanked folks who don't have access to a bank. Either it's because of geographical reasons, they're just living in a remote community, or it's because their financial history is such history that banks don't want too much of a risk and You know, most of the people who would listen to that show, if not everyone, would be people who have at least one bank account and a credit card. So that feeling would be, you know, completely foreign to them. But not having access to a bank, not having a place to keep your money, 
not even, you know, not being able to store, transfer, receive funds and puts you in a very, uh, very vulnerable position. When you think about it, what you had in mind is third, fourth and fifth world, right? Correct. But this is not the case. 55% of Americans do not have a bank account. 55% 55% of Americans? Or maybe 45. I don't remember which one. But Double yeah. digits. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, the, and, honestly, the... and honestly, but because when you think about, about a bank account, you think about, you know, a place, a branch, you go, you deposit money. But this is like an old thinking. Why do I need a bank account? I need a place, as you said, to store, to perform actions. I can do all of that with my mobile. And it doesn't need to cost a lot of money. This is where, you know, a new category of, you know, banks are emerging. But let me give you another area where there's a lot of investment. It's called open banking. What does it mean, open banking? In the past, a lot of your uh, financial services you would receive through your bank. So you need a loan. I don't know. You want to enlarge your um, small business. You can go to a bank. Maybe they will give you money. Maybe not. Maybe they're not interested. You're too small. They're not not safe enough they don't believe in you and so on now you want to go to an alternative lender right which maybe the interest is slightly higher but they're willing to give you the money now they need to assess the risk of giving you money how do you assess the risk you have to go to the bank you know provide them all the paperwork uh, my job my safety net who's uh, who's uh, who's gonna back me up exactly now open banking basically said to the bank we don't want that Tal will go to the bank and, you know, print the papers and fax them or, I don't know, scan them and send them to the alternative lender. We ask you as a bank to provide Tal an electronic way to share his data with a third party. Now, once you do that, the whole process for you to get a loan for, you know, an alternative lender is much, much easier. It, It removes barriers. It makes the market much more transparent. And then it, you know, a transparent market where it's easy to move from one place to another is a more efficient market and then what happens is it's it's cheaper for you as a consumer uh, to get whatever you need and it's also true not as an individual but also as a small medium business and this is what happens if you if you look at <clears throat> we mentioned the israeli fintech companies that raised uh, above 100 million so lemonade is on the consumer you have companies like bluevine who does loans for uh, small medium enterprises uh, Funbox, which is the, the same. So, and there is a lot of focus these days around um, serving uh, the you know SME <clears throat> landscape, just because the digital allows you to provide cost-effective services, which was not <clears throat> possible a couple of years ago. Back in the day, we're talking we're talking a couple of years ago. Uh, um, asking for a loan would create a chain reaction within the bank. The due diligence, the analysts, the auditors, the uh, the underwriters, and so on and so forth. And uh, today, much easier. I've lived in, in the UK for a year, and I could open a Revolut account using my WeWork address. Super easy. They wanted a passport and a local phone number, and I could open a bank account and receive a card and everything. Fair enough. But if I wanted to open a regular bank account... I needed to apply for a website just to get a meeting. The meeting would have taken two or three weeks to book it. I had to bring so many documents. I had to bring my visa. I had to bring my employer. I had to bring my contract. I had to bring a lease, a lease for an apartment or a utility bill. 
just to open a bank account in the UK. So the reality is that today about 5% of account in UK are with digital banks like Revolut. The estimate is that by 2023, it will be 50%. So, wow. you know, you would say, yeah, but people just open an account, right? The banks don't care. But this is not the case. Because as a bank, what you care is where people are putting their salary. Because this is, you know, where the money, you, most of your money comes from. This is what gives the banks the flexibility. Yeah. So last time, you know, I uh, heard about, I was informed in Monzo, for example, 1 million people also already put their salary into Monzo. So... Yeah, the HSBCs and the Barclays and the <clears throat> RBS are hell worried because they are slowly losing a big proportion of their um, of their audience. Now, so some of them, by the way, are opening um, their own. Their own, yeah. yeah. So you you saw that Goldman opened a digital bank in in the UK. Yes, and... so many of them. They're they're competing so aggressively. You use the tube. And it's all about uh, it's all about uh, digital banks, Sterling, N26, Monzo, Revolut. It's good. But it's good for you as a consumer because when there is competition, when it's easy to move from one uh, provider to another, then firstly the prices are going down, and B, each one of them would like to excel, all right? They and then they come s- up with more services. They and... have to have some <clears throat> unique selling proposition exactly. in order to make it uh, to make it compelling. So what I don't get is if it's also good and customer-centric, why is it so hard? What stands between us and, and the complete evolution of open banking? Is it regulation? Is it consumer behavior? Walk us through the challenges in that world. So firstly, it's a process, okay? It's like originally the bank in general. Everything related to finance, people need to trust, okay? So, and you trust your bank. Maybe you hate your bank, but you trust it. Okay, and this is very important. Now, for you to go to a fintech company, right, that was just established a couple of months ago, and see there was a, now uh, a big scandal with um, Wildcard. Uh, yeah. So, Wildcard for those who uh, aren't following fintech news is the infrastructure that allowed some of the digital banks to essentially operate. They were holding the money, they were giving them assurance or guarantees over that money. Basically, this, this is where consumers had their money kept. You had a Monzo or a Revolut bank account, but your money was insured by Wildcard. All of a sudden, out of absolutely nowhere in a part of a regular audit, $2 billion or euros were missing from Wildcard's books. A big scandal, CEO immediately arrested, and all of those digital banks had to stop their activity. So this is why the migration towards challengers is not that easy because you have to gain people's trust because, you know, your money is safe because (laughs) this is your money we're talking to. It's not a matter of regulation. It's a matter of A, getting people's trust, B, having a compelling offer. So why move my money to a different place? You're saying I didn't change anything in the way I behave with uh, my bank for a you know, for a long time, the digital services I get are pretty good. You know, it's not my biggest problem now, and this is why I have to move. So maybe for somebody who's opening a new account, it's different. Unless, you know, you're unhappy with uh, with, with your bank, and then maybe you'll go and, <clears throat> and explore something new. A lot of the people usually will open another account. But then the, the challenge is, um, because, also because it's easy, 
is where your fortune is, right? Yeah, to, get, to get you to actually deposit your, uh, your salary into their account. One thing that the digital banks do well is, is kind of leverage the data in a way that's uh, very pro-consumer. I'll give a few examples, meaning every time I would buy something with my Monzo or Revolut card, they would round it up. Let's say I bought, I went to Tesco, I bought something for $11.76, they would round it up and 24, uh, 24 cents or, or, or pennies would go into a, um, into a deposit. Yeah. You, know, you can break it, you can use it whenever you want, but just so you know, it's there. So the thing with innovation, right, is it's not just about having a better user experience. User experience is important, but, you know, it's not, e- it's not difficult to close the gap in terms of user experience. It's about how you provide new products and services and this is an example all right i will encourage you to save right? long-term saving by just rounding your your purchases the challenge with all these challengers and in, with innovation in general is not how yeah it's also how you do things differently but also how you leverage that for providing new products and services for your uh, customers so in the bank, for example, if I'd want to open a savings account or if I'd want to open a, some sort of a fund within my account to kind of save for something, they'd be like, okay, I need to go, I need to allocate, I need to open, I can't access it, this is the interest. Monzo did like, yeah, fine, whatever it is, like your honeymoon trip, okay, you can just wire, you can just reallocate the money within your account into that piggy bank, you decide the, uh, the when it opens up and so on and so forth. And, uh, and, and that's it. And you can go in and actually visualize how your money is kept and used. Also triggering a, a, a notification every time you spend money and being able to make smarter decisions about it. Super easy, super simple, and yet not enough to get consumers to fully adopt. No, so firstly, you know, they have 2 million accounts, which is not <clears throat> and 1 million people getting their money there. So it's, um, <clears throat> it's pretty successful. You're saying Monzo has... Two million accounts, one million people deposit their salary. Maybe so even more today. Maybe even more today. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm making it sound like it's not a success, but you're saying actually. It's a success now, but the paradigm in terms of how do you provide services changing. In the old days, all right, you have um, a lot of cap- features, capabilities within your bank. So you can take a loan, you can uh, transfer money. Invest you can in do the, all these invest in the stock exchange. Exactly, you can do all activities. Today, it's not as you mentioned before. It's not about you being able to do actions. It's about you being able to complete goals, to uh, make your dreams come true. Right? You would be saving, you know, the pennies or whatever for your summer vacation in I don't know Haiti or whatever you want to go. Um, I'd love to go to Haiti. Haiti, okay, great. It's very far. <laughs> <laughs> but then it, it's a whole different thing. It's not about you're opening a saving account and, and putting money or whatever. It's about they helping you to achieve your financial goals. You want to buy a new piano. You want to open your um, business or expand your business. You want to go on vacation and so on. And, and it's a whole different language of how... Um, you interact with your consumers. And this is, for me, the change, right? The change is the, the entire approach. The entire approach is much more natural for you. They are your financial advisor. They are not your bank. And to do that, they are a bank. But, you know, they help you 
achieve your goals. It's funny because when you describe it, I'm thinking about it, that my banks are my banker for me. Mm-hmm. So when I think of my, uh, my bank, I think of, of my banker. The lady who called me every time I was, uh, I was uh, misbehaving in my, uh, in my account. Uh, the lady who called me um, to renew a loan or to, or to sell me a loan. And when I'm thinking of my digital bank, I'm thinking of a brand. And I have, I have a logo, I have colors, I have uh, schemes or initiatives rather than a person. For me, digital doesn't mean not human, okay? There's a lot of stories, okay? Think, take the uh, robo-advisor that were very popular about five years ago. The robo-advisor? Robo-advisor. The idea was let's, bring, let's build you a financial advisor, which is a computer, which will help you uh, with your uh, financial decisions around uh, your investment and so on. It wasn't a success well, because at the end of the day, a lot of people want to talk to a person when it comes to their investment and so on. So I think the, the challenge with digital, not, not, by the way, not only in finance, in other places as well, is to find the right, the right compromise between, yes, some of the services need to be given in a digital way and some of them are not. Think about even commerce, right? Maybe I'm buying something. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I want to buy it totally online. I want to talk to someone. I want to consult with someone. Why is it so difficult for me to have yeah, a quick phone call or something with a human, not with a, with a machine, so I can ask a few questions. If you know, I'm happy about the answers, then I make the purchase. So for me, it's not about either human or digital. It's about the ability to combine both To, to an experience which is set for your um, needs and expectations. So, so the best of, uh, the best of uh, all worlds, cost-efficient, fast, secure, uh, easy to use, but also trustworthy, hyper-intelligent, understands more than just the data that you input in it, can also absorb information in a contextualized manner. Let's go... A little deeper into your work with city's innovation lab mm-hmm. innovation lab is not a traditional work environment is it it's different it started with tech companies in you know the beginning of the, this century you know, tech companies were basically transforming different industries if you think about you know Google Facebook Amazon and so on in 2008 there was the uh, you know big financial crisis the uh, mortgages in in the US and then globally and At that period the trust in the banking system was cracked practically non-existent exactly uh, it was also when the Bitcoin emerged and so on to try and replace the banking system by a distributed ledger so banks were always in innovation okay uh, I can I don't want to run you through uh, 200 years of uh, banking but I can you know there is a but I can <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there's there's a lot of examples how the system became more uh, more efficient you know things like the ATM and so on and and but, you know this is the history from 2008 the banks realized that something significant has to change right and there is you know all these technology and digital and And the question is how do we we adopt it how do we uh, you know remain relevant how do we transform ourselves and one of the way to do that is to build your own capabilities so at that time few labs not only in city but in you know in uh, in other leading banks emerged and the role of the lab was to help the organization go through this transformation period 
help not in a sense of writing papers because it was not like the traditional biz dev of, of let's build a business plan. It was, you know, we we actually need to experiment with, with technology to see how we can incorporate this technology within the organization and, you know, help the organization move forward, innovate, transform, and, and so on. So this was the background for building innovation labs in, in large enterprises. I want to stop here for mm -hmm. one second because you said for two, 200 years, banks have innovated within the framework of, of, of the company, which is the bank. And then something shifted. Yes, because it was still the innovation lab were part of the organization. But, you know, they realized that it's very difficult to innovate as part of your day-to-day. -day. You know, Google had a, a program, even before the, um, you know, the labs, of, of the 90, 10% of the time, you, you remember yeah, that? Yeah, the program so, allows employees to work on the side initiatives 10% of the time yeah. and get paid for it. it. It's not very successful. It, you know why? Because... When you're doing it called like a BAU uh, job, you're stressed. You have deliveries. You have to, you know, you, you have to... Uh, um, Perform. Yeah, and, and meet deadlines and so on. So this context switch of, ah, oh, yeah, now it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. It's my time to innovate. It doesn't work. It does work differently when you're saying 90% of the people will do the BAU and maybe 10% of the people will innovate. Now, you can give anyone in the organization the opportunity to be part of the if they are interested but because not everybody is interested to be part of the innovation team within the organization this this is what big organizations are doing today if you are if you have the desire and also the capabilities to come up with ideas and develop them then yeah it will give you some time to do that offline maybe you know but then when you're doing that you're dedicated Right, so you get like three months or six months or a year or two years to work on um, on a on a project like this, this and 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 promote it. And the labs, the idea was that these will be facilitators for these kind of um, so these kind of initiatives. Because at the end of the day, especially with technology, you know, you need people who will help you. You, you have a good idea, great, but you have to implement it today. I guess we'll talk yet later a bit about you know teaching innovation and how it works is it's very interdisciplinary you have teams uh, a lot of the times you would have technologists but you might have psychologists you might have user experience anthropologists and, and so on so you have an entire team of people with different uh, skill set that are working on a project and this is something which is much easier to do in a separate unit got it so what does an innovation lab look like what did it look like for you who are those people? How are you measured? Good. So there's different models and different organizations, you know, running in and different. But at the end of the day, and it's very difficult to measure also. There's a lot of discussions of how do you measure innovation. You can measure it by patents. You can measure it by releases, by adoption. But at the end of the day, organizations measure everything by dollars. And the risk is that they will not take risk. Okay. Because what is innovation? Innovation is about taking risks, right? It's about managing uncertainty. Now, if I'm taking big bets, then I might be very successful or fail. Now, if I'm measured on dollars, then I will take small bets. And then the, you know, the pace of change will be small. So I think the, the, the challenge is, you know, you want to create a unit where it's first, it's okay to fail. Even look at the biggest you know, companies like Google and Facebook, they have a lot of failures. A lot of projects they have put millions on millions and didn't succeed. They did it, 
they didn't uh, fail on purpose, but it's okay for them. They understand that, you know, as part of the process, sometimes this is good, sometimes you're not. You look at startups as well. Most of them fail, but some succeed. Same goes for the innovation labs. You have to find a good mix of projects. Some with uh, are disruptive. Some are like more core. Some are adjacent. There's some, you know, uh, models of how to do that. And you have like a portfolio like this, which is well-balanced on on average, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will succeed. Got it. And who are the people working for Innovation Lab? Are these just engineers or? So this is what I said before. It's very, the, the idea is to build a very interdisciplinary teams. Okay, you know what? Let's, let's say, let's go about it in a very practical way. You were hired to run the Innovation Lab. Yeah. You start hiring people. You start relocating people from the CTHQ. What do you do? How do you create that mix that allows yeah. for new ideas to emerge? It's a good question. So for sure, if it's a technology-oriented place, you need technologies. Okay? You need people who are able to build. To By the way, it's different between prototyping. So you know, being able to build something very quickly in test and building large-scale systems. At the beginning, you need prototypers. You need people who are very versatile, who can pretty quickly come up with a, a solution. By the way, everything that I'm saying now about Innovation Lab is true for a startup. At the beginning of a startup, you need someone who is very flexible, um, you know, like the CTO type person, which is capable of building something very quickly. It doesn't have to be robust, doesn't have to be scalable at the beginning. It's not important because all you want to do is prove your concept. And once you've proved your concept, then, you know, you hire people and you build. These are different people. What I realized, by the way, is that a lot of the developers, they don't like, the, like these context switches and they want to have like a big project they work on and so on. But some people like it. You know, people are diverse. Then you need the business knowledge because at the end of the day, you need people who understand the needs, you know, can come up with ideas. And, um, and even, you know, good ideas is not enough. You need to be able to tune the, those ideas into, you know, into real products. And this is where the, you have the business side, but also the product side. It's slightly different. So some people who understand how you make business, uh, how you make money, uh, basically, of uh, what you're developing, and some people who understand how to build a product. Not the same people. And then you need user experience, obviously. So you need designers and so on. And then, and then it depends on the project. Sometimes you need data scientists. Sometimes you need psychologists. Sometimes you need that. It depends what you're developing. It's not rare to... To hire people with you know certain skills sometimes as consultant or for specific projects according to what you need at the end of the, of the day you have a very interdisciplinary team to run your venture so what was your role in that i mean it's not that you manage the developers it's not that you tell the psychologist what profile to write what does managing that unit entails so in general when you're managing unit you're responsible for the strategy and again, it's true also for a star, but you need to decide where to take the ship. You do blockchain, you don't do blockchain. You do data science, you don't do. You focus on that area of uh, banking payments or lending or, or capital markets and what within capital markets. So when you're leading a unit, you need to come up with a strategy. And the strategy needs to take into account, one is, what does your organization need? Because the organization, in my case, were my clients, like for a, for a startup. What do they need? You know, where they see the future. So you need to understand, you know, where the world is going, where your your clients are going. 
to be able to remain relevant for them. And then you also need to understand what are your strengths. So what kind of people you can recruit? How can you attract those people and be relevant for them? So they will um, <clears throat> join you and, and uh, fulfill the, um, your strategy. So this is what you do. London, the UK, the capital of fintech, plenty of talent to go around, easier access to the US and to Europe, and here in the middle of the freaking desert, desert uh, innovation. It doesn't strike me. It's, yes, remote, isolated, fine, but it doesn't strike me as the best place for, for hyper-specific talent recruitment. Okay. So firstly, there's about 350 multinationals operating in Israel. So city is not the only one. If there are so many uh, uh, multinationals operating here, there's probably something right happening in, in, the, in the space. Yeah, the best food in the world. The best food, uh... all right. <laughs> and the beach and, and the weather is pretty good. But let me tell you a story. When city, so firstly, city is present in London and in States and you know, in Singapore and other places. It's, they have... It's a very big organization, about 230,000 people globally and about 100,000 people or 120 doing what they call operations and technology. So there's a lot of people in a lot of places. Your question is why innovation in Israel, right? It's a good question okay? um, that merits a, a concrete answer. Okay? Eventually, the question is whether you can actually come up and recruit the right teams to be able to, to fulfill the dream. When Citi considered the opening of the uh, center in Israel, they considered other places as well. One of them was Russia. And, you know, one of the uh, concerns with Israel is that um, is the political uh, state, right? Yeah, the yeah. geopolitics. And funny enough, when the Citi team went to Russia, when they finished the um, evaluation there, they were going on a plane back. There was um, an explosion in uh, Moscow at that time. So what he said, we don't say maybe the Mossad was behind it, but I think they realized that there's no safe place globally today. And it's true, maybe that Israel is a bit, maybe slightly unsafer than other places, but this is not a reason, yes or no, to, to open the uh, operation here. At the end of the day, I think Israel has a lot of talent. If you are operating in the right way, you can bring the right value proposition to the local tech community, then you can attract people to, to work. I think people were excited to be able to make an impact. In, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a bank with 200 million accounts. Okay? With, it's, a, it's a huge beast. It doesn't get any bigger than that. Yes. Like it, this is, if you're working in finance, this is one of the biggest stages. Exactly. So you have the, you know, you're doing projects that impact the entire, you know, we have developed uh, a mobile application. To, to trade and then also watch to you, you could do trading from your watch it was a gimmick but you know it was pretty nice and then you know suddenly you see especially now with the corona people at home the volumes that um, this mobile application suddenly received it, it was big before but now it was way way bigger you know it's revenues for the each time somebody is trading a 100 million trade, you know, FX trade on this, uh, on this platform, it's revenues for the bank. So where do you build uh, a mobile application where a trader will go and, and put a 100 million trade on a, on a mobile? Uh, it doesn't get bigger than that, as you said. Does it operate like a startup? 
what were you expected to create? What did you create? What do you wish you had created? So yeah, it does. It, 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 it's a funded startup. So this is the, um, the advantage, okay? So the funding process is much easier internally than it is externally, okay? Well, as a startup, you have to go and pitch. And, a CEO and so spends on. between a third and half of their time yeah. uh, uh, raising money. So the, the, uh, the advantage of doing things within a corporate is that process is much, much easier. Okay, you need to get approvals to the budget, but like essentially it's a much easier process. It has, by the way, the disadvantages because you know maybe there's a, the due diligence is, is slightly uh, lower maybe comparing to the external where you have to pitch to somebody um, you know external. You know, but then you also work within the corporate. So once you've developed something, you want to connect it to real systems, to customers. This entire process is much, much easier. You have a customer base. You don't have to go and acquire customers. You exactly. can just roll out to 0.1%. Yeah, but still, still, even if you do a project, and you would hear it from all the tech companies in Israel, there's a lot of pro- you, you can do a project internally funded and everything, but still you would have to sell it to your customers, whether internal or external, because the fact that there's, you know, a new product or a new service doesn't mean that, you know, the salespeople will adopt it. If they don't think that they can sell it, they won't sell it. If they, if they feel that the business case is not strong enough, they will not choose. They, let me give you an example. We have built a recommendation system for salespeople to make the right suggestion to, to their clients. You know, at the beginning, you would say, look, I know my clients. I don't need your help to tell me what I need to offer my clients. Classic salesperson. Classic. But, and I do understand them. But the challenge is that as, you know, when your inventory is hundreds of products, you cannot really do manually uh, search and, and find the right match between your customer. And even if you know your customer, okay, let's say... And especially if you have tens of customers, the challenge is how do you adopt it? A lot of people ask me, how do you make, you know, how do you adopt a, a solution within your organization? And I think the, uh, the trick here is to find early adopters, is to find there's always the one or two or three people that would like to ex- explore with new uh, solutions. You find these people and you give them the, you know, your solution, whatever it was, a recommended system. And then if it works, and they're willing to try it. And then if it works for them, the others will see and they will adopt. Because people are typically reluctant to change. Because change is something unknown. You don't, you know, you don't know what will. Uh... So most people, the vast majority of people would, uh, would prefer that somebody else will be the, 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 the guinea the, pig. Yeah, exactly. And if you find that early adopter within or outside the organization, they would test your product. If it's not good, it's not good. You fail, right? That's fine as well. But if it's good, then the others will. And this is how basically it happens. So you and, can... And then once you're, you know, the way it works is once this is over, there's the scaling. And like what we did here in Israel is the scaling was also part of the lab. So we had also the ability to take a successful POC and then to build a project out of it. In different labs had different models. Sometimes you would move that at this stage from the uh, prototyping teams to the BAU teams. It has advantages and disadvantages. BAU stands for? Uh, Business as usual. Business as usual. So the regular business, the core of the company. Got it. So you kind of segued us into a term called 
intrapreneurship. We're talking a lot about entrepreneurship. Now, intra. Intra means from the inside. How do you drive change from an organization that doesn't want to change or doesn't know how to change? Any um, thoughts on that matter? So, again, it's not that people do not want to change. People are afraid of change. Okay? Change is because people are afraid to, you know, somebody will come at the beginning of a project. Basically, I'm helping you guys make me redundant. It was funny. We were talking to a guy and he said, I understand that this is the reality, okay, that I'm going to be redundant. I can either embrace it or try and fight it. But if I fight it, I will lose. So I prefer embrace it and be part of the change. This, this was, you know, some of the guys. Some of the guys said, ah, it will not work, blah, 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 and, and so on. I think, you know, large organizations have, you know, a lot of talented people within them. And their challenge is to create the railways or the venue where people are entitled to come up with ideas and to give them the opportunity to develop those ideas. So to build these internal uh, uh, startups or ventures or whatever you want to call them. And this is what a lot of organizations are doing. They're basically allowing you, if you're interested, not everybody is interested, to, to come up with suggestions. They, you know, they will run all kinds of method- internal methodologies and contests. And there were like a lot of ideas of how to do that. But eventually, it's, it, these kind of uh, initiatives work. And you can see a lot of examples of you know, new products, new services developed by large, not, not only in finance, by the way, where it started with um, you know, an initiatives of uh, an employee. Fair enough. Other companies smaller organizations maybe don't have the capacity to kickstart innovation teams or labs. What advice would you give entrepreneurs who want to innovate while still building their business? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's a good question. They're not so small, the organizations who cannot allocate uh, resources, okay? Um, you know, the, the top organizations in each field will have their own teams and so on. Most, like 95% of the organizations, 
do not have these resources. Now, the medium ones, all right, the medium large ones, would typically have very small teams, one, two people, an innovation manager or something like that. They will take uh, that would take care of you know how to um, incorporate ideas from outside into uh, the organization. These guys were, would rely on startups. Okay, these guys would rely on initiatives that are happening outside the organizations. For a startup, it's a bit tricky. Why it's a bit tricky? Because say you have developed some, you know, so firstly, if you compete with the organizations, then do whatever you want. But if you want to try and sell to organizations, then you need to find your early adopters, right? You need to find the organizations that are willing to be the first to adopt your product. Typically, those would be the big ones, not the medium ones. The medium ones will usually, usually, wait till one of the big ones will adopt the solution if it's working because they do not have the capacity right <clears throat> maybe they have the capacity to one or two products per year to to try but then they will try and go safer they will usually send you to somebody else to 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 be the first now the challenge is that when you go to the big ones you compete with the internal uh, teams that are developing also these kind of um, solutions so so it puts entrepreneurs often in a very, you know, complex situation. My advice, right, is when you're looking for your first clients, they would typically be from the, you know, the big organizations. And uh, because these are the ones that have more capacity, more capabilities to, to try and adopt uh, uh, new solutions. They would do tens of projects per year, not two or three projects per year. So you, you're more, you have more chances there. Most of these organizations today have accelerators or all kinds of programs to work with the ecosystem. So this is where usually where it is managed. Leon, about, about mm -hmm. that. So you're saying if you're a startup and you want to uh, continue growing your product, your best bet would be a very large organization because they have more capacity for these types of, let's call them experiments. But in my mind, these are very conservative organizations. Yeah, but there are incumbents in general conservative. Actually, the big ones are less conservative than the, uh, they are more willing to take risks than the medium and the low. The medium and the low, as I said, they have, much, you said even, they have much less capacity. So they would do significantly less projects i'm not saying you cannot get into one of this but it would be much difficult in the big ones there is much more much more opportunities okay but then you have to be careful whether they are already doing it themselves and then you have there's no point for you to to try and because they are already working on it in general you have to be able to I would say dif differentiate is not the right word, but the value proposition needs to be something that they will not want to do themselves. Because if they want to do it themselves, they, they, they probably can. Probably. That's a good word. The The budget allocated in or such organizations to innovations in, is in the millions of dollars. Most of these projects... Um, hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds sorry. of millions of dollars. Most of these projects are, you know, under the hood, very stealth. They happen within the organization, a team. Sometimes the people who are working on it in the corporation are doing other things in parallel. Like, you don't even get to hear about that until it gets released, if it gets released. So I'd say a substantial percentage of the innovation projects within big companies 
you never heal. So what advice would you give startup entrepreneurs when coming up with ideas and pitching them, given how much of that information is concealed? The notion of, you, you, when you think about a corporate, it's not one organization. It doesn't work that way. It's a lot of organizations. So a lot are... of people trying to solve similar problems simultaneously. Yes, and there's no problem about that, by the way. These organizations are usually pretty distributed, and each organization within a corporate is independent. And, and trying to reconcile that is impossible. You know, when you're saying I'm doing you know, business with a large bank or a large insurance or whatever, you're probably doing business with a specific unit within the organizations. If you take insurance, for example, because each country has its own insurance company. They're all called AXA, but it, it's not the same. And the fact that you sold to AXA in Germany doesn't mean you will sell to AXA in France. Not at all. So you as an entrepreneur needs to identify the right people within the organization Okay. It's the innovation people are usually the one that will route you to the right people, but they are not the right people within the organization. They're an, an, an adapter, a gateway between the company and the external world. Yeah, they are. Uh, I prefer the word router than a gateway. Because, yeah, they also, you know, um, because there is a lot of startups and so they do some sort of a screening. But say you pass through the screening, okay, because company cannot meet like hundreds of startups every year now they will help route you within the organization to the place where there is a product market fit to your uh, solution so you need to be to understand that this is the process usually you would have to go through these channels selection process sort of selection process then done that they will route you to the right unit and then still you need this right you need to decided, you know, they want to now work with you and POC together or whatever it is. Obviously, after you've done the first and second organizations and you already have clients, then it's a totally different story. You're describing a quite lengthy process. It is. So you need a funding. You can do B2C, B2B. If you do B2C, your challenge will be in marketing, right? You need to, to get to a lot of people and it's pretty expensive. If you do B2B, Again, it depends on the organizations. Maybe retail organizations are a bit quicker than, uh, than banks and than insurance, but it's a lengthy process. It's a lengthy process because, you know, it's not that there's like people within the enterprise that just sit there and wait for you, the startup, to come and, and, and oh, we've been waiting for you for a year. I'm glad you came. It doesn't work that way. People have their BAU role. Now, it depends. Take the example of Zoom. When the corona... I just heard this week that City adopted Zoom in, in less than two months. It was a record, all time, never done something like that. But this is an extreme situation. When you come with something that the company really, really needs urgently, yeah, you might be, you know, much quicker in the, in the process. But then, you know, the entire organization is, is mobilized to help you. It's not the case. Usually with, you come with something that, you know, it's the future, it's a strategic or whatever, but... It's not something you need yesterday. It's something that you will need. And then it will just go through the process. And it will take time because, you know, people are doing other things as well. So let's, uh, let's distill it. You're saying, A, it's probably going to take much longer than you think. It is. Uh, B, you want to make sure that you're, that you're funded throughout. So that's not your one, one shot. 
a, a one one attempt into yeah. making the company happen. You need to understand that you are working with a part of the company, not with the company. So there will be a other. You have to sell again and again and again and again. And it could be that True. your ceiling would be a AXA in France, and you won't make it to Germany. So very probable. Uh, it depends on the organizations, by the way. Some organizations are more centralized. City is one of them. More global. And some organizations take HSBC as a very local organization. So it depends to which organization you work with. And then there is creating a sense of urgency. So sometimes your company is right at the point where a crisis happens and all of a sudden you are a commodity or the most needed a product in the market. Fair enough. But if you're not that, how can you make it feel like you are? How can you make it feel like you are a must-have in that company's a, a skill set? Now, In terms of how you conduct yourself with a corporation, not the high-level strategic stuff, but if I write an email to my CEO, I can skip the uh, pleasantries. Hi, how are you? I hope you're keeping well. So I think it's not, about, not only about the style of how you write emails and um, you know, how you address people. A lot of it is to understand who are you dealing with, what ticks the person across the table. At the end of the day, when you're working for... Uh, I don't know if you work for a large corporator, but, you know, within... 12,000 people. So with corporates, right, each one of us as an employee, I have my own goals, which I have to achieve. If the startup is helping me achieve my goals, then it's much easier. If the startup will help my the, the, the person that will replace me achieve his goals, then it's nice. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I would be less interested. So I think you have to understand who you're talking to. You have to be responsive. So we see, I saw a lot of examples where, you know, the corporate will send the startup um, an email and the startup will reply three days later. So I'm not the top priority for this startup. If I'm not the top priority for this startup, then uh, maybe, maybe they're busy doing other things. Maybe you have to be very responsive as possible, right? Um, obviously, you know, you, you have other things. You really have to understand also not only the goals of the person you're, but also the restrictions. It's like the, the limitations, what they can, what they cannot. You have to understand who is the decision maker, who is not the decision maker. How does the process look like? So I think as, as, as a startup, you have to ask a lot of questions to understand how is the journey going to look like. Until you can eventually get to Nirvana, right? Yeah. On that, I, I think it's even small things like the way we store data as a startup is probably not nearly as, as, as robust as a corporation would need to store data. But you don't have to worry about that because the corpor- the, like, div- uh, there's two steps. The first step is the prototyping. When you POC, in the POC, you don't care about how you store data. You just want to see that eventually, right, I can build a business case of incorporating your solution within my corporate, okay? With the business case, all right? It will cost me X, I will do Y, and, you know, there's a um, justification for uh, uh, moving forward. Once you've built the business case, you've proven the value for the corporate and so on, they will walk you through the process. Don't worry. They won't let you store data on whatever. They will guide you, And this is why also the implementation will take longer than you think, because you would have to go through the compliance and the legal and blah, 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 and so on. But don't worry. If they're interested and the business case is in place, they will guide you through that. Got I it. wouldn't worry about that. 
So we've spoken about how startups can adjust and should adjust in order to work with corporations, but let's talk about the other experience of do corporations, I'm generalizing, but do they understand what the startup life is like? The uncertainty, the scarcity of resources, being spread so thin, the risk they're taking on by choosing you as a customer? The honest answer is not really. Okay, it depends. Okay, some, obviously the people working in innovation, yes, they do. Right? And some of them came from startups. Sometimes they came from somebody that didn't succeed. So the answer is yes. But, you know, the, the people, the typical corporate person, no, they don't. And honestly, they shouldn't. Like, you, you made your choice, right? You decided uh, that you have a dream, you want to follow it. I'm talking as one who did it, right? Who left the corporate to, to find my own, uh, my own uh, venture. It's my choice. It's not the problem of the person in the corporate. He's a day-to-day and he will do his job and follow his goals and, and so on. And, you know, if our interests coincide, then great. If not, he won't. So as a startup, don't, you know, don't hope that somebody on the other side will worry about you, will understand you. It doesn't work that way. It's business. Like, if you can help this person succeed, great. If you're not... You have a problem. The call hard truth. Yeah. One last topic for us uh, today would be teaching entrepreneurship. So you, we've, we've had a 360 degree circle nearly of from entrepreneurship to entrepreneurship, corporations, startups, innovation, uh, so on. Now, you also teach. And so much of what we share between us is not something we, we can talk about it for as long as we'd like, but these are hard life lessons that are being learned in the trenches. Yeah. How do you go about teaching entrepreneurship? So to be honest, entrepreneurship today is what you know business administration was a couple of years ago, and it's something which you can teach up to a certain extent, but obviously you learn it on the job. But There are models and theories to how to do it, okay? There are, I would say, best practices today to how to build your own venture. And when you learn that, okay, you don't necessarily, un- when you are in school and learning that, you don't necessarily understand the full implication of what you're learning. But if you do learn and, you know, you listen to that, Later, when you will um, face a lot of these situations, you will remember what you, you learned um, in, you know, in college or in university and whatever, and it will help you dealing with, uh, with the challenges. Now, think notions like uh, MVP. What is an MVP? It's something you can learn. Still, all right, designing an MVP, understanding the full meaning of an MVP It's much more difficult, right? Then you can lear- learn about it, you can practice, but the reality is slightly different. When it comes to the decision-making, MVP, minimum viable product, the one thing the company would do least, uh, it has to be the absolute minimum because this is all the money and time we have. It has to be viable, it has to work. And, and for example, viable is not something that people really understand. In reality, and then they will build like kind of a prototype say this is my MVP but this is not your MVP because this is not a product it's not valuable yeah. nobody will pay for it but then this is something you understand on the job right you can 
hear about it in a university, you can learn about it, but when you have to build it yourself, this is the first time. But then the theories that you have learned will help you. A couple of my students have formed their own startups, and in some of them I'm involved. As sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less as an advisor, sometimes I'm uh, really working with them you know, shoulder to shoulder. You know, this is where you see, okay, that, you know, these guys have followed like two or three years, depends in, in which stage they open their startups, of courses of an entrepreneurship, and then they come to practice. And then you see the gap between the theory and the reality. But, you know, the fact that they follow the courses helps them adapting to the reality. And the other advantage, by the way, that there is in these kind of faculties is that you meet a lot of people. It's a good place to network. And, and you know, when you're out there, you, also, you already have your team together. And this is a big advantage. As someone who hasn't uh, had any uh, formal education beyond high school, I see sometimes I have the inferiority complex in, with people who have on one hand. And on the other, I didn't, I didn't really uh, consider uh, higher education in the field of entrepreneurship critical. But what I saw is that so many people who have studied, they have the confidence to go out and explore. And that's something that if you haven't systematically learned, might be missing. You could be, you could be, you know, the saying, ignorance is bliss. You know, you don't know what you're doing, so you don't know what to be afraid of. Like a kid in a, in a park, you know, you, you're fearless in that regard. And that could be an advantage. But also, when you have to start answering questions like, so what is your business model? And, geez, if you have to think about it from scratch, then it's a complicated one. But if you have some sort of formal education, you can say, oh, well, we have an MRR-based uh, software, and these are the benchmarks we need to hit. This is the CAC, customer acquisition. This is the LTV, and so on and so yeah. forth. So I think it gives you, it kind of cushions some of the process, and with addition to the network that you can build and the access to people who can help you further down the line, it's uh, substantial. If you were to choose one lesson to teach, the whole course would be one 60-minute lesson. What would you decide to teach? It's always about the use case. It's either a use case or a simulation or, you know, a project because the, you know, these guided activities are the ones where you're learning the most because you are kind of, um, you know, in an aquarium where you are sort of mimicking the real world, but then you get the feedback and firstly, you have to encounter the reality because you have to build something. And then you also have the feedback of the professor that helps you, you know, understand, let's say, the gap between what you're doing and um, how does reality look like. I'm going to try and finish us off with a three question. Okay. Excuse me if it's an unfair one. All right. But if I'm saying to you, I've got one or two years to invest in my future career, what should I do? Become an entrepreneur and start a company or go and study? What would you say? Yeah, certainly become an entrepreneur. You know what? I think the answer is a bit tricky. In your case, based on what I've heard, it's probably become an entrepreneur, but it's, it's also a matter of personality. Some people need that, you know, academic background, as you said, to get the confidence that they can do it. You can learn that later on the job and whatever it's not like 
100% necessary. But if you have the opportunity, if you're not in a hurry, if you can, then enjoy. Be a student, take your time, meet people, learn a bit. I don't know. I did it for 10 years. So maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, and I'm not, you know, I don't regret the moment that I did that. Would I become whatever I become if I didn't do that? I don't know. But this is not the question I'm asking myself. So you've done academia, you've done corporate, you've done innovation, and now you're starting an independent path. Yeah. Any valuable lessons that you've already gained by becoming a founder that you'd like to share before we wrap up? In a way, the challenge when you're becoming a founder after you've done a lot of things in your life is that you're much more cautious or much more realistic, okay? So it's uh, more difficult for me to, to dream, okay? So when I put an Excel spreadsheet with, my, with the numbers, I say it has, you know, the story has to work. It's not just putting numbers and, you know, the revenues will go that way you don't get to be carelessly optimistic yes exactly that's that's one of i guess a challenge but on the other hand i'm much more prepared when i engage with uh with customers when investors because i already anticipate what kind of questions they will ask i keep asking myself every day what is my edge what is you know what is it that i provide that uh, my customers are missing fine-tuning the uh, uh, my value proposition and you know you do that as uh, because you have a bit more experience than uh, maybe younger entrepreneurs even if you're teaching something if you're you're still making a lot of mistakes I, I guess that if if I had, have, have an advice here for entrepreneurs is it's totally okay to make mistakes I always, I said uh, when I'm uh, when I was a manager, and I'm now saying the same when I'm an entrepreneur. I reserve myself the right to change my mind. The the fact that I said something doesn't mean that you know I have to stick to it. If I realize that it's a mistake, and you know we need to, then fine, I can change it. I think that's powerful advice. Uh, sometimes the the stream of of reality of life makes it very hard to change our mind. But between allowing ourselves to fail and allowing ourselves to change our minds. There's a world of uh, freedom that allows for entrepreneurship and innovation to, uh, to thrive and emerge. I'll tell you one more word on this one. My boss at City said, um, one of the sentences he always said was, as an organization, we're very good in starting projects. We're very bad in stopping them. And I think the challenge is to know, and stop doesn't mean that you have to stop. It can also mean you change. As an entrepreneur, you went the wrong way. It's like gambling, right? If you keep investing, you will just lose more. If it's time to change, don't be afraid of making changes. If you were bold enough to start your venture, be bold enough to admit that you made a mistake and change. Super valuable. Thank you so, so much, Leon. Any place we should go to learn more about you and your work? You can come to my course <laughs> as a free listener you, with people asking. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, you know, people approach me. I'm talking to people and happy we'll, to. We'll make sure to include uh, your LinkedIn handle uh, when we post the yeah. episode. And we wish you the best of luck in your future endeavor. Thank you for enriching us with uh, such a wealth of knowledge from such different worlds. Uh, absolutely fascinating. The wealth of knowledge you bring with you is uh, sometimes hard to come by when it's a world obsessed with young, bold ideas 
uh, with some disdain, disregard for what happened in the past. So I really appreciate that perspective. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.